here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Applications are now open for Author Accelerator's 2022 Manuscript Incubator, where 16 writers will get seven months of one-on-one -on -one book coaching through a revision, and the opportunity to present their revised manuscript to a panel of agents and publishers. To celebrate applications opening up, and to give you an idea of how a book coach can help you with the revision process, Author Accelerator is hosting a free online workshop on July 8th called Ready, Set, Revise, How to Plan and Revise a Novel or Memoir. If you're ready to tackle a revision head on and you want some added support, head to authoraccelerator.com slash manuscript hyphen incubator to learn more about the incubator and to save your spot for this summer's free event. 
Before we begin today's episode, I'd like to let you know about a fundraiser that we're doing that, besides raising funds for a really excellent cause, will give you an opportunity to win one of three awesome prizes. Now, my first novel, Hum If You Don't Know the Words, was translated into Ukrainian, and I recently had a Ukrainian reader reach out to say that reading my book had offered her solace and distraction during a really difficult time in her life living in a war zone in the Ukraine. Now, after chatting with her, we decided to do some fundraising for various nonprofits who are doing such amazing work there. So here's the deal. For every $20 you donate, you get one ticket into a draw to win one of three awesome prizes sponsored by Carly, Cece, and myself. If you win one of those prizes, you'll get to decide if you'd like a 45-minute brainstorming session with us or if you'd prefer to that we give you a detailed 40-page critique of your work in progress. So you get to pick the prize depending on what you need the most. The more you donate, the more tickets you get. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com for more details and to find the link to the GoFundMe. Support an amazing cause and stand a chance to win an awesome prize. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. We're kicking it back old school where Carly and Cece both discuss the same three query letters. Right, Carly, I'm going to hand across to you. Hello everyone, we're just about to begin. The first thing I wanted to remind everybody about is that, number one, we try to jam in as much information as possible in these segments. The one thing that we don't always get to when we mean to is more praise. You know, there's so many really well done queries out there and sometimes we do focus on the negative, but it's just because we want everybody to learn through this segment. That's the goal. So just remember that we do appreciate everybody sending their material in. We adore you all. But here we go. Let's try to work on some creative criticism and build some skills here. Here we go. Dear Ms. Lyra, nine-year-old Grace gets home from school and is jolted to find her mom and Ron in the living room waiting. What is Ron, her mom's old boyfriend, doing there? How could he be out of jail already? After what Ron did to her daughter, Lynn was heartbroken, horrified, and finished with him, save for a small tug of hesitation. Financially compromised, lonely, and struggling to raise Grace's brother who wrestles with a significant mental illness, Lynn becomes torn when apologetic letters from Ron start pouring in, lamenting his mistake, promising he's a changed man, and that he's learned his lesson. She can't shake the thought that, this one awful incident aside, He'd been the pinnacle of a kind, generous, and supportive guy, so she's invited him back into their home to give him one more chance. When Ron's dark side is revealed again, though, Grace realizes her mom was wrong. She must then decide who her loyalty is to if she has any hope of surviving, her mother or herself. With the help of her insightful counselor, Ken, the care of her best friends, and the healing power of her first love, Jake, she will face the crucial question, what really makes a family? Meanwhile, terrified of how she can make it if she leaves Ron and struggling to figure out how, amidst his lies, Lynn questions if the sense of security she's been grasping for might be what's causing her to lose so much. Told in alternating points of view of mother and daughter, Grace and Lynn, each learn life-changing lessons about sacrifice, love, and bravery in Redacted. In the words of Banksy, one of the world's top artists, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the uncomfortable. This is a story that can do both. Though there is some difficult subject matter in the story, there is just as much hope, character growth, love, and beauty. In Scribbler's recent manuscript contest, which was concluded and announced on February 15th, Redacted was a top 10 finalist. 
I'm querying you, Ms. Lyra, since you've mentioned being a sucker for novels about dysfunctional families. You've remarked that both stories about family of original and found family interest you. This is a central theme of Redacted. What makes a family? Is it shared blood or something more? You've expressed a love for novels about female friendships, close female friends, sisters, and mother-daughter. Redacted has each of these as a strong focal point through the story. Grace and Lynn's relationship, Grace and her sister, Lacey and Grace's deep connection with her two best friends, Natalie and Jamie. I read in an interview with Curtis Brown that you are especially interested in sibling relationships. There's a special focus on the relationship between Grace and Lacey in Redacted. You mentioned morally ambiguous characters. This is Lynn, the mother character. I also noted your love of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone by Lori Gottlieb. I too reveled in this book. Lynn is quite similar to Rita in Gottlieb's story. In terms of her devastating choices as a mother and the way she is humanized in her resulting experiences for those choices. I suspect your fascination with psychology and the human mind would be satisfied by the deep dive readers get into both Grace and Lynn's minds and hearts in this book. Redacted is about families we're born into and those we make for ourselves. It's a hope-filled coming-of-age novel about the power of close friendship and first romantic love. Redacted is a story that explores the often complicated question of what makes a good person. It's an exploration of challenges that millions of women still face today as a result of sexist barriers. It's a novel about intergenerational trauma and the ways in which those layers can build and connect. It's also a story about the redemption and healing possible when one dares to face the choices they've made. Somebody's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford, the New York Times bestseller, deals with the theme of trying to forgive a parent for an abominable act. My novel wrestles with a similar idea between a mother and a daughter. Within Redacted, we experience the perspective of a deeply flawed, complex mother protagonist like in Jasmine Ward's Sing, Unburied, Sing. This story has similarities with themes found in the acclaimed novels The Paper Palace by Miranda Callie Heller and Speak by Laurie Hulse Anderson. People drawn to complicated mother-daughter stories like Elizabeth Strout's Amy and Isabel will find power in this book. The manuscript is 120,000 words and fits in the genres of literary, women, and upmarket commercial fiction. Laurie Chittenden, my editor and the editor of the New York Times bestselling books, All the Ugly and Wonderful Things, said of Redacted, Your manuscript affected me deeply. This is an incredibly brave and inspiring and necessary book. The way in which you capture Grace's emotional development provides great insight and understanding. This is a book that can heal readers. Lori was named an industry maverick by Publishers Weekly and a key player by poets and writers. I'm querying you, Ms. Lyra, based on your mention of the authors. Curtis Sittenfeld, Redacted, has similar campus atmosphere and feel to prep when Grace is in college. J. Courtney Sullivan, one of my favorite authors, and Leanne Moriarty. My writing feels similar to these voices. Lastly, you mentioned gratitude to be able to help these bring these stories into the world that generate empathy, escape, and provocation of thought. These three feelings apply to Redacted. The founders at Scribbler remarked that when they read my manuscript, it got them up and out of their chairs, pacing their offices because they were so emotionally moved by the story. They also remarked that this was a rarity for them. You are the agent at the top of my list, Ms. Lyra. I imagine your background as a lawyer and an author yourself makes you a much more well-rounded agent. I'm also compelled by the numerous excellent books that P.S. Literary has helped make it into the world, including several of Taylor Jenkins Reid's books and Where the Forest Meets the Stars, which I totally loved. Since the age of two, reading has been a great love of mine. It is my goal to share stories that move and emotionally inspire others the way I've been by so many books. I'm a writer for Medium, where my articles have garnered between 50,000 and 98,000 readers. I am the author of three blogs. I've been published in Drunk Monkeys Literary Magazine and other online publications. 
To see more of my work, you can visit brookenglish.com. Redacted is heavily based on a true story, though I'm labeling it as fiction. I began writing it during the four years I spent living in Europe. Now I'm at work on another novel and live in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you again very much for your time and consideration, Ms. Lyra. I appreciate it. With best regards, Brooke English. Awesome, Carly. Thank you. Right, Cece, since this was directed at you, would you like to tell us what you think of the query letter? Thank you so much, Carly, for reading that. Okay, yes, I want to share thoughts on how to make this stronger. First, I have numbered the paragraphs only because this is on the longer side. This is almost 1,200 words. One of my big picture notes is I think we need to trim this down to give you the best chance of catching agents' eyes. Paragraphs 7, 9, 10, and 11, in my opinion, should just go. Not that there's not great content there, there is, but again, we should, we should try, we should aim to keep this at very, very max 600 words, so that's like half. I would like to also suggest that you start the POV paragraphs, that's paragraphs two and three, with the name of the POV characters. So for example, instead of saying, after what Ron did to her daughter, Lynn was heartbroken, horrified, and finished with him, etc., you can start by saying, Lynn was heartbroken, horrified, and finished with Ron after what he did to her daughter. Same with the following paragraph. Instead of saying, when Ron's dark side is revealed again, Grace realizes, start with, Grace realizes her mom was wrong when Ron's dark side is revealed again. I'm saying this because you're centering your story in the women who are the heroes of this journey and who are the people whose head we're in. So I think that's a minor adjustment that will go a long way. Still regarding the note of let's cut, when it comes to paragraph four, that's the one that starts with told and alternating points of view. I recommend cutting everything after the first line. I love that quote. It's such a great quote. But again, unfortunately, we, we do have a space limitation. And for anyone wondering why that is, it's not just because we want to torture writers because we don't want to do that at all. Um, it's because unfortunately we get so many query letters. Actually, that's a good thing because I want to get a lot of query letters. But because we get a lot of them, we, we do need them to be on the shorter side. It's something that's expected of us agents when we submit our clients' work to publishers, right? Like we have to write pitch copy and that pitch copy can't be too long either. When it comes to paragraph eight, that's the one that starts with Somebody's Daughter by Ashley C. Ford. I recommend compressing it. So you want to keep your comps in one line max, right? Like two comps, one line, keep the word count and position your story in one genre. You're saying it's literary, women's fiction and a market commercial fiction. So I would, you know, fit this squarely into one genre if, if possible. I also want to say that your author paragraph is excellent. I really, really like it. So I honestly wouldn't change a thing. In terms of the plot, the plot of the story, I, I have a question and it's a question that will also be, I'll echo that question in the pages, but is it intentional that we don't know what Ron did? Because it feels, based on the query letter, that this is a part of the novel's set up. Similar to how, you know, in My Husband's Secret in Leon Moriarty, like, finding the letter is the setup. And so we know that she found the letter. We know that he wrote the letter to be open in case of his death. And so I feel that we should know what Ron did because that isn't a reveal. That is just a part of what happened that made him go to prison and that made... Grace 
obviously not want to be around him and you know Lynn too. I will share that my brain, unfortunately, I hate this, but it's true, automatically went to sexual assault, as in Ron assaulted Grace. And if that's the case, I you know I'm really struggling with understanding how Lynn could invite him back. I understand that you know redemption can happen in any kind of story, but it's it's one of those things where I feel like you should tell us because or else we're going to think this horrible thing and we'll be like, wait, what? No, no, this could never happen. So I don't know. I, I would want to know what it is and I would just establish that early on. So those are my notes. I hope this was helpful. Thanks so much, Cece. Carly, what did you have to add to that? I completely agree with everything Cece said. Just to kind of get at like, where is the query letter? So to me, paragraph one, two and half of three, that's the query letter. That's it, right? And then we just need our comps. We need to narrow down the category or genre choice, add in the author bio, like that's it, right? And so I think this author cut and pasted a few different types of pitching and just threw it all into this letter. So in terms of what a traditional query letter is, this isn't it, because really it is kind of a, to me, it's it's something where potentially a script for if you were going to pitch an agent in person, this this would be a great script. It's just really not a query letter in the sense of what is a query letter's job. A query letter's job is to hook an agent, you know, and do it in a certain amount of words, essentially. So really, it's just it's just doing a lot. And the reality is agents will just skim. They just will. So what we're going to skim for is things like keywords, you know, how long is it, you know, the comps. And so I think that this starts off completely on the right foot, right? That paragraph one, two and a half of three, that that's the query letter to me that that's what it is. So that's really what I would focus on. Everything else to me is just things that you would either pitch an agent in person or when you were having the call with an agent who liked it, then you would talk about all these other things. I almost feel like this is just attempting to just sell too hard. You know, it's like, really let the book, let the words speak for itself. You know, have a really tight hook, have your comps, have your author bio. All of this is superfluous to me because a lot of this stuff I know, you're just repeating, you know, for example, you know, themes of a mother and daughter, right? We're getting this in every paragraph, but through a proper second paragraph, that proper plot synopsis paragraph in the query letter, we would know all of this, right? It kind of comes back to when I talk about, we don't need to talk about themes. And the reason is because the plot itself will tell us themes and we can connect the dots ourselves. So I think it's just too much. All the intentions are there. There's amazing intentions. Like you're trying to sell yourself so hard. And I have so, so much respect for that, but really just let the pages speak for themselves and let your query speak for itself. And, and your query is, at the beginning. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, can you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages and then your take on them? All right. So the story starts similar to how the query letter began. So Grace arrives home and she's confused because her mom is home and her mom usually isn't there at this time. And Ron is there. And, you know, we see her breath evaporating. What is he doing here? He's supposed to be in jail. And there's a conversation in which Grace's mom says, you know, remember we talked about this, about being a family again. Ron would like to apologize. And Ron does apologize. And there's a moment where she flashes back to a Saturday afternoon where she's looking for her mom or Ron, you know, because she wanted to ask if she could have $3 for, for the ice cream truck. And she walks into the house and Ron is wearing a pale blue bathrobe and nothing underneath and his robe is open so you know grace is exposed to his private parts as she calls it so 
She's horrified and she rushes out the door, forgetting about the ice cream. And then we're back into the living room and, you know, there, there's, there's a conversation in which they, they talk about, you know, perhaps becoming a family again and, and, and the fact that he's out of jail. So essentially, that is the plot. What I thought about it. So I do have, as usual, quite a few notes. So first, is Grace scared when she realizes that Ron is there? I imagine she is. We're not getting that fear on the page in the way that I personally feel that we should. There's a line about turning the corner, her breath evaporated. That's it. There, there isn't a lot of visceral emotion as described through the body, which is typically how we experience visceral emotion. So I would up, work on upping that. I would like to know how long he's been in jail for, because I think that's relevant since she's nine years old, right? Like did, the, did whatever happened happen six months ago? Was it a year ago? I want to understand that. I also understand like still discussing emotionality, there's a part, it starts, it starts with the paragraph, she pictured Jamie's room in her mind. Clearly what ha what's happening there is that she's dissociating and that's quite common, especially after trauma. And it's very understandable from a human point. The issue with writing a character doing that in writing is that it can come across as, as apathy and as you know stripping someone of their emotions. And especially in the beginning, we wanna be feeling those emotions. So I would recommend weaving in active emotions and just, I would reconsider the disassociation as a whole. When we flashback, again, I want to know when this happened. We do get a note saying it was a Saturday afternoon, but was it six months ago? Was it a year ago? I really, I just wanna know when this happened. I don't think that should be a mystery. I also feel like whatever happened that landed him in prison, I need clarity on what that is. In the present day, meaning when she's nine and comes home from school, we don't get that information. And we do get, again, the flashback of him exposing himself to her. But I wanna know if that was it. If, you know, a line at the end saying, you know, after that happened, you know, there was a whirlwind of whatever, you know, with like police coming to the door and Ron being taken or, or whatever happened would be enough. We don't need th that many more words. But I do want to understand, was this it? Was this the fact that landed him in jail? Or was this the beginning of, of things he did to her? And truth be told, either way, it's not okay. But I want to know. I don't think that this is something that can be kept as a mystery. I don't think that this is something that is going to keep the reader curious. It can't be a curiosity seed. It has to be a part of the setup. Or alternatively, start the book at a different place. A great book for you to look at that actually deals with really complicated themes is Dark Horses. And that book, even though there is a father-daughter relationship in which he rapes her, he rapes the daughter, this is found out early on, but the book starts with her in school, dealing with a bullying situation with a girl who's saying things to her and she's confronting her bully. So, so anyway, you, you can choose what works best for your story. I mean, assuming you even like my feedback, but I would do either one or the other. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't try to keep the reveal of what he did as the carrot dangling for the reader. It's just not landing in a way that I feel comfortable. I want to highlight that there were very interesting lines. So for example, you wrote on page seven, I think, because though she knew her real dad loved her, she wasn't always sure he liked her. You know, there was just some very interesting insights here. And so I, I do think that there's, there's something 
there's something to be said for how you captured her emotionality in terms of thinking about other aspects of her life, her friend, her, her biological dad. But again, when it comes to the big plot point, I personally have a different vision for it. So sharing that, hope it works for you. Yeah, that's it. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Kali. Oh, right. I definitely agree agree with Cece on everything, especially that comment about apathy and trauma. It's a trend that has come up in a number of manuscripts. So it's a great lesson for all of our listeners out there. Okay, definitely. I think the strongest points of this sample are is the writing about nostalgia. Really, really wonderful. But it really made me miss a timestamp because I wanted to know like what type of nostalgia, you know, we have that, you know, she's running up sprinting to her room to keep reading a Goosebumps book. So I'm assuming this is like probably 90s, but I'm not entirely sure. So I would just love it, especially because we're going to be doing multi POV and jumping around in time, which means that having our timestamps would be really, really key here. But all of this nostalgia is done so, so well. That was really balanced with the parts that were really uncomfortable. You know, that was really, really tough to read about what we presume to be a sexual assault of a minor. We assume, again, I think the author knows that that is what they're, what they're kind of, as CC said, dangling in front of us. It's tough. It's tough to read. You know, not everybody is going to be able to wrap their head around that. If anybody has done any reading around in the in the query, the one of the comps was Speak, Lori's book. There was a lot of a lot of pushback. It was you know hard to publish. It was an up, uphill battle. We have to think about the mix between this person writing their novel, writing their art here, mixed with a commercial marketplace that's going into you know who's who's going to be stocking it, who's going to be buying it. There are a lot of really important things to read that. that are uncomfortable, but knowing it's an uphill battle, I think is just something that needs to be mentioned. And because there could be, you know, moments where agents might not be looking at it, not because it's not a great book in itself, but because the subject matter is uncomfortable. So those are the things we wrestle with when we're writing about complicated topics. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's go to the next query letter. Will you read that for us? Let's do it. Dear Carly, As a longtime follower and fan of your strong leadership and advocacy for women's stories, I am seeking your representation for my psychological thriller, The River is Just a River, complete at 92,000 words. Sandra Bullock's premonition meets the emotionality of migrations by Charlotte McConaughey and the twisty turns of Taryn Fisher's The Wives. After four whimsical years in Buenos Aires, 26-year-old Lex is back in the Bay Area for good, putting down roots even as every fiber of her being longs to leave. The only thing that makes staying easier is Liam. Handsome, thoughtful, successful Liam is the first good guy Lex has ever dated. So when she sees his name on a list of people who've died at Yosemite National Park, she's sure she must be seeing things or going crazy, especially since his date of death is six months away during the weekend of their upcoming camping trip. But when Liam becomes the prime suspect in a co-worker's murder investigation, Lex doesn't know what to believe. Her heart says he's innocent. The facts say he's not. Scrambling to find out whether her boyfriend is a murderer or next in line to be killed, Lex must face her demons and save Liam before history repeats itself, and she ends up with the blood of yet another loved one on her hands. As a former RWA member and Romance Landian native, I have officially overdosed on happily ever afters and switched to the dark side of human nature. 
I placed as a finalist in Critique Matches Fiction 5 contest and gained inspiration from my travels as a Miami-based flight attendant. Sincerely, Abby LeClaire. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Carly, will you give us your take on that? Well, thank you, Abby, for the nice words at the beginning. You know, we, I do always appreciate that little bit of flattery and knowing why you chose me. So that was really, really lovely. Thank you. All right. So I'm going to start with our comps. So Premonition, I've never seen this movie, but now I'm like, I really need to see this because this seems really interesting. So I'm moving this to the top of my list. So in terms of the comps, we have one movie and two books. Migrations is a bit more literary. Taryn Fisher's The Wives, much more commercial. So we are definitely dancing with some really different comps here. I think The Wives is the better comp and Migrations potentially not just because it's more kind of literary, I think, and about the environment and, and like has a lot more to say in that space. So I'm just not seeing, obviously, like with the camping, there is an environmental theme, but I just don't know how strong that is. So I just wasn't clear on if that was potentially the, the best comp, best option for a comp there. Also, it, again, it's not a thriller. So might want to might want to swap something out for that one. So I really like how high concept this hook is. That is really what stands out for me is this, you know, she's seeing him's name on the list. Is it real? Is she trusting herself, you know, six months away? Anyway, like all of all of this is really, really interesting. High concept hook on a commercial novel is a great selling feature. So well done you. I definitely have some questions to kind of weave my way back through why, like how this book is going to kind of come together. So number one, where is this list of names? Is it in the newspaper? Is it on the website? Like I, I'm just a bit confused on where, because that kind of matters. Is this an official document? Is this an unofficial document? Social media, you know, again, the the vagueness here does affect the actual plot. So I would just make sure that is quite clear. The next thing is where do they work? So it says when Liam becomes a prime suspect in a co-worker's murder investigation, it it almost kind of makes it seem like they work together at the same place when they say like co-worker or is it co-worker in the sense that like it's Liam's co-worker or do they again work in the same place? So it's like all three of their co-worker. I was a little bit unclear on that and I would like to be more clear. And then there's this like huge kind of twist at the end, which is and, and uh, she ends up with the blood of yet another loved one on her hands. So this is a bit of a, huh, we're, <laughs> is this obviously intentionally kind of hooking, you know, having like a hookish ending? Does this have to do with why she took off to Buenos Aires? You know, why she's back in the Bay Area? Again, I, with thriller, with thrillers, it's always hard because it's like, how much do you actually tell the reader versus how much do you want them to find out? These days, I would say, try to get as close to that line as humanly possible without spilling the beans. And I'm going to tell you why. There are a lot of people on the edge of burnout these days. If you've been following any of the publishing news, you'll know that like editors are overwhelmed, agents are overwhelmed, submissions are taking a really long time to go through queries, you know, the query system. And one of the ways you can combat that is just to pitch us the most exciting parts of your book as quickly as possible. And so don't hold anything back. You know, I don't always say this about queries. I'm sure if you go back and listen to two years ago, the episodes, I would have said something different. But in this day and age, you know, but just, you know, the level of distraction and burnout and, you know, the number of queries we're going through at any given time, just getting us as much information that is exciting about your book as possible and not holding anything back, except for the twist, obviously, or the whodunit in a, in a crime or a thriller. But I would just try to walk that line as tightly as you can. So 
I would just give us a little bit more here because again, like we want this query to stand out amongst the hundreds we're reading that day. You know, why is this a query we're going to request? And so I really think that you can walk that line a little tighter, you know, tell us like maybe a little bit more about this family member, the blood on her hands and why she left for those four years. Because I think those three elements would make it even more exciting. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Cece? I just want to echo that great critique. I agree. I wanted to know more in a, in a great way. And I feel like you can afford to share a little bit more. I would take a look at We Were Never Here by Andrea Bartz and the pitch copy for that on the back of the book because they did a really good job of revealing just enough that, you know, there were details about what had happened in the past, which was essential to understanding their predicament in the present. I would also like to say that, okay, love, love, love the hook. I was so intrigued when I saw, you know, her looking at the list and his name was on the list, like so cool. But then when I got the line, you know, but when Liam becomes the prime suspect in a co-worker's murder, so that felt like that wasn't connected to the first thing. And I, I, I like the plot development, but I don't get how it's tied to what came before and creating an airtight sequence of events really does help when it comes to painting a picture of your story. And that can be a small thing. So for example, she's visiting him at work. She sees the list of the Yosemite names on a coworker's desk. And that's the coworker who gets murdered. Like something small, right? Like just something to be like, and how were these two things connected? As opposed to just being like, there's this one thing and there's this other thing. You don't want two boiling pots that are away from each other. You want one thing that's actually a spring for multiple sources of tension. So yeah, this is really great. Really great. And I can I just say that you're lying about switching over to the dark side. Like, welcome to the dark side. It's great here. We can hang out. This is so much fun. Okay, Carly, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? Here we go. Our timestamp is February 2021. We start with our protagonist in first person coming into their studio apartment that they're renting in San Francisco after talking about how much they loved their kind of spacious place in Buenos Aires and and how cheap it was to live there versus the very, very expensive Bay Area. We learned that her mom is cancer-free, which potentially has something to do with why she is back in town. We're talking about the kind of grimy-ish place that she lives. It's really expensive, but, you know, not all that great. Then she gets home. She gets to her, her apartment door, and she sees that the light is on underneath. And she's like, somebody's in there, opens the door. It's actually her boyfriend who would come to surprise her with some pad thai. And they're kind of chatting, having some pad thai, talking about their relationship through the narrator's point of view you learning that they've been together around six months and he has a birthday coming up that is six months away and he has planned a camping trip. We also find out that she doesn't like camping at all. And that's where we end. Marvelous, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Cece, what was your take on those opening pages? So my take is that the emotional calibration is off. I want to start by commending the author because there's disruption here. Like her showing up home and being like, oh my gosh, there's someone in my apartment and then it's just Liam. And then, you know, we get the emotionality about how much she loves Liam. That's great. You want that disruption. Tension is created through disruption. The issue is that there are two moments in which through dialogue, we learn information and her emotionality isn't unfolding in a way that I personally feel reflects human nature. So for example, when she shows up and there's a light leaking from beneath her door, we need to get the spike of fear 
first before information on the neighbor's door or anything else like that. That has to happen first because the spike of fear does come first. And then the second thing is when he mentions camping, we get like all this information, including like a really playful line. That's almost like a joke. And then we get, you know, the fear from camping. And then we get the, the fact that, you know, camping is, is incredibly traumatic to her. So I don't think that that's like, again, it's calibration, right? Like it's just changing the order of things and being mindful of conveying the visceral emotions first. I think that's really important. Um, in terms of the clues, so there are two moments, you know, why does she hate camping so much? So there's one line where I was like, okay, I need more specificity here. And that's when she says, is half a year of dating too long to be keeping awful monumental secrets? Like awful monumental secrets is as big as it gets. And so don't do that. Like, I feel like you should do something like, you know, I don't know, it's been six months, but it still feels too soon to tell him about that night in Chicago. Or it still feels too soon about just something with some type of clue so that my brain is then locating clues about that night in Chicago. You actually do it. And this is the second example I wanted to share. You do it really well in this other line where you say it stayed with me for 10 years and will stay with me for the rest of my life. There's enough specificity there that I'm like, okay, it's been 10 years. So I, you know, when, when sharing clues, you want to give just enough information that there is something to chew on, but not too much that I'm digesting the food. So that's what I would do. I really do love the specificity here. But yeah, like ending it with like camping, Yosemite, no, no, like exclamation point. Like it, it's not matching how the scene is unfolding. I'm curious to see what Carly thought. Carly, what were your thoughts? Okay, I'm going to say something where everybody's going to be like, you're not supposed to say this. Okay, potentially I might advocate for a prologue or something structurally interesting because I'm obsessed with how high concept this hook is. Everybody wants high concept hooks. Agents, editors, foreign rights agents, the foreign market, every, like high concept hooks, right? It's all everybody wants. And so I really feel like starting like this, we're just like burying the fact that this is uh, has this high concept hook. So do we need a prologue? Do we need a letter from the past or the future? I honestly just think we need to play. We need to think about structure a little bit here in a more playful way to kind of allude. And again, I haven't read this whole book, so I have no idea. You know, maybe the structure does get more playful as it goes on. We are promised kind of in the query letter that it will with this premonition comp. So I would really lean on that. Again, I'm kind of coming back to the query letter. You know how I said like, nobody has time to read, right? Like we need to hook editors and agents from page one. Like we don't have time. And with this high concept hook, like, I don't know, I just feel like we're, you're keeping something really special kind of tucked away in your back pocket when I kind of need you to lead, I think, with that, with that card that you have buried in the deck. I'm not sure how that is. Again, I haven't read the whole book. You're the author. This is your book. But I would be looking at other thrillers that are playing with some interesting structure, you know, seeing what's working. What are your comps doing? What are the other high concept thriller comps? Because I just, I, I'm worried. I'm worried people are going to pass on this and they're not going to get to the interesting parts of this book because we're just starting with what is common. What is common, right? Person coming back from work, they're tired, they're coming up the stairs, talking about their shitty apartment, you know, that they that's expensive. Like, so, There's so much that's common about that. Whereas I believe that you have a very special hook. And so I have the confidence that you can write this in a more compelling way. So that's my advice for like how to sell this book and, and how to stand out. Because also what ends up happening, I think, in these opening pages, there's a lot of repetition. There's a lot of repetition of, 
you know, how much stuff costs, you know, what it's like to not be able to afford stuff, repetition of this camping, you know, focusing on like, oh, she she has secrets. Like we just we get all of this multiple times. So I would probably go through and like highlight every time you're saying something duplicate, because a lot of times sometimes it's in dialogue, but we're also saying it in the narrative. So I would really be focusing on that. But I encourage you to play around with structure here and, and figure out if it's like we open with a letter, we open with the list, we open with a prologue, we open with the past. Like, I don't know. I just think I I think you got something here. And I would just I would hate for agents to pass on this just based on the fact that we're opening with a bit of a slow burn. Thanks, Carly. And for our listeners, remember that this kind of repetition comes from insecurity at two places. One, not trusting yourself enough as a writer and two, not trusting the reader enough. You know, remember what Britt Bennett said, your readers are smart. They will figure this stuff out. And, you know, from Carly, Cece and myself, we believe in you as the writer. We believe you are smart and we believe that, you know, you're able to do it and we're able to to get it quite quickly. Okay, so Carly, will you read us the next query letter? Dear Cecilia Lira, to start, I want to thank you, Carly and Bianca for all you do to help the writing community. I can say with certainty that I wouldn't be this far in my writing journey without the shit no one tells you about writing. Cece, I have written specifically to you because you have said you are looking for stories that feature morally ambiguous characters, female relationship dynamics, and dark twists. Rules of the Road is an upmarket thriller complete at 70,000 words. It will delight readers who enjoyed the unhinged friendship dynamic in We Were Never Here by Andrea Bartz, as well as fans of the road trip suspense in He Started It by Samantha Downing. In the wake of an ugly breakup, 27-year-old Claire is certain to keep one thing, her ex's beloved custom-built camper van. When she makes the rash decision to take it on a revenge road trip with the intent of making him jealous, she casts aside her city girl persona and becomes determined to learn the rules of the road. When she meets Cass, she is delighted to find a kindred spirit traveling in a matching van. The pair bands together, following the map that Claire's exes left in her van's glove box and documenting the trip on their social media accounts where he is bound to see it. But Claire quickly learns that the rules Cass follows have a sinister twist. To make matters worse, her ex won't stop sending her cryptic messages, and she's fairly certain that she's being followed by a stranger who reminds her way too much of him. As Cass's antics turn what's supposed to be an enjoyable trip into a trail of terror, Claire has to learn the most important rule of the road. Don't trust anyone but yourself. I'm an author from the beautiful West Coast of BC. I have worked as a writer in various industries, including technical writing and marketing copy, but only recently made the dive into fiction writing. I live on a small farm with my husband and three-year-old daughter, where we have rescue ponies and grow produce for the local community markets. I thank you greatly for your time and consideration, Catherine C. Louise. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, what was your take on that? I want to say that, first of all, these are two comps that are so much fun, and they really get me excited when I see cops like this, right? And then at the same time, you're setting a really high bar for yourself. And I am so proud of the author for delivering. After I read those comps, I was like, well, this better be good. And it was. And so just this is, first of all, this is a great query letter. Like I have notes on how to make it even better. But truth be told, if I got this in my inbox, I would have just been like, let's scroll down to look at those pages because it's absolutely fantastic. So two notes in terms of the plot. One, I would like a little bit more specificity when it comes to Cass's antics. Perhaps we could see the first thing she did, like the first weird thing. And then we could get a line about how, you know, more things follow with a sinister twist. 
or, or, you know, whatever it is. I just have, I just want one sense of what it is that she is doing. And since this is going to escalate and her antics are going to keep going up and up and up, it's fine to share the first one. So that's one thing. And then the second thing, it's a bit more of a big picture note that let's face it is none of my business, except you sent this to the podcast and you know, I'm a brainstormer. Would it be possible to give her a final destination that matters with some type of degree of emotional overarching arc emotionality? I, you know, road trips, they are about the journey, but they are in theory to the character starting it out about the destination. And then you learn that actually it's all about the journey. So I don't know, giving her a destination that mattered to her growth as a character. And that also of course was tied to the great plot that might make this even stronger. So I don't know if that's possible. I haven't read enough, but it's something to think about. And I'm just like the bravo. This is, this is really great. This is just a fantastic query letter. You should be very proud of yourself. Thanks Cece. High praise indeed. Carly. Just piggybacking off of that brainstorm, one thing I was going to say was um, picking a destination would be great, but midway finding out we have to change the destination, I think is key. So I don't like, I wouldn't want it to be too predictable, you know, not the saying that CC was saying that at all, but yes, having a destination is a goal, right? And in, in something that the character can work towards and something that the reader also thinks they're working towards, but then we have to split the goal. So it's like, she thinks she's going there and all of a sudden she ends up, you know, going somewhere else. Again, part of the journey of life. We never know where we're going, metaphors and such. So, but yes, I think that, I think that brainstorm is, uh, is a really good one. So yeah, this is really kind of tight, concise, you know, short-ish, all of the things that I think are, are really strong in a query letter. I honestly, I'm looking back through my notes because I always make them before we before we record and my notes say, so nice, good, ooh, this is good, lovely, <laughs> and that's it. So I don't really have anything super critical today. I think based on where Carly was when she read this pitch, Carly thought it was great. Amazing. Right. Okay, Cece, will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? Yes. So the pages start out with the protagonist getting fired by her boss, Jan. And, you know, she's having trouble paying attention to Jan's words because she's she's essentially fantasizing about, like, keying Jan's car <laughs> because she's just really upset. And then she goes home and... Her sister um, is there and she makes a joke like, did you get fired? Like, you know, because she's home in, in, a, in a weird time of the day, but obviously she doesn't expect that to be true. And, and yeah, it is true. And so they have a chat about it. They have a, you know, a bonding moment and they're clearly very close. And we get through in her life information on her ex. So for example, as the sister's doing something else, because the sister is home, but you know, it's working from home. The protagonist checks her social media to see what her ex is up to because she has this competition with him where she wants to post, you know, interesting things and to be doing things that are more interesting than things he's doing. We do get, you know, information that makes it clear that he was not a good boyfriend. He called her lazy. He said things that were just, you know, not very nice to her, quite mean, made her feel like things were her fault. So, yeah, so that's essentially what happens. Great. Thank you. Okay, Carly. All right. 
kind of echoing my my thoughts with the query letter, I honestly felt like I was reading a published novel. Like I really felt like I was reading a finished book. You know, I was so in the moment, you know, not being kind of taken out of it, thinking of edits here, word choices here. Everything was just so subtle and that kind of the distance between like trying to keep it together while she's getting fired, but like wanting to key her car, but like knowing what the right move to do. Like, I just love that in a thriller when it's like, she wants to do something bad, but also doesn't want to do the bad thing. And that like that push and pull just from such such an early point in the manuscript was great. I also love the tension with, with the sister character about like, she basically she says, Danny finds a bottle of wine in the cupboard. It's been shoved behind packages of crackers and tins of food. I wonder if she's hiding it from me or herself. And when she brings it close enough that I can read the label, I can clearly see she's hidden it from me. It's fancy, probably a gift from one of her clients, high end like her. So it just says so much about these little, it's subtle things. It's not like, oh, you know, my sister's fancy and I'm not. It's like, oh, there's a wine bottle. It's hidden. You know, it's like all of these layered ways of showing us through plot and through movement about these, the character dynamics, the sister dynamics, I think is is really, really important. Honestly, it felt like a, a finished product to me. I would love to read the, the whole thing. I think it's really, really well done. Wonderful. Carly, Cece? I want to echo Carly's sentiment about how polished and great this is. I do think that there are things that we should work on. So for example, she's she's getting fired, right? Which is a great way to start a story, disruption. But I would rather her walk into her boss's office expecting the opposite, expecting a promotion or something. Because that way the disruption just lands even stronger with even more tension. And I don't want her to be thinking about keying the car three times and then walking out of the office and seeing her car and thinking it again. It's too much repetition. So. I would rather get visuals on other things so that when she does see her boss's car, that's even just feels more evil. Also, there's a line where she says about King Car. I know in my heart I would never actually do it, but it helps to think about how it would feel. I have one of my best friends is called Kaylee. And when Kaylee and I have dinner, we always talk about we vent and we talk about all the stuff we wish we could do to the people who are jerks. I don't do the things because I don't want to, you know, get in trouble with the law. And Kaylee doesn't do it because it's not who she wants to be because she's a very good and kind person. What camp are you in, protagonist? That's what I want to know. I want to know, like, this is not who I want to be or I've been in trouble before. I don't want to be in trouble again. And I don't have to know this now, but it's just something that I want to be revealed through her emotionality because I think that's just very cool. The second big picture note I have is this. So. She gets home and she debriefs with her sister. It's a very sweet moment. It's adorable. But a second disruption to create a one-two punch disruption effect that would really up to tension would be better. I would like her to get home expecting to be able to vent to her sister and really have that special, wonderful moment. But guess what? Her sister's jerk boyfriend is home and she feels humiliated to be fired around him because he's not a supportive guy or something else. I don't know. But I just wanted that expectation not to be met. She walked into that house knowing she would get support and that's what she got. And in my opinion, subverting your character's expectations is a huge, huge part of like really upping the tension and really creating that conflict and establishing those stakes. So yeah, that's, those are my notes. I have a few line notes on a few instances where I felt that you could cut just because there was a little tiny bit of overwriting. But yeah, this is really good. This is really amazing. Okay, Cece, I'm going to counter that argument there because of both the reasons I was saying I was liking it. So I actually really like, I really like that she's a little bit distant. And we were just talking about, you know, in a couple of queries ago, how distance can be good and distance can be bad. 
Because I feel like this is building to her blowing the fuck up. And so that's why I really, I liked, I'm just like, all of these things are just adding on and we're just waiting for her to like lose her shit. And so I, I don't know. That's the reason, like, I just felt like we were building to something. And so that's why the distance worked for me. I don't know. I just felt like it really worked in this case, which is like a prime example of how everything is completely subjective. And that's just like how I felt today. Um, but that's why well, I, I, I want to understand why. when you say distance, do you mean like of yeah. why she wouldn't want to do bad things? I mean, like, you know, the keying the car thing and why it was mentioned three times. Like, normally, I would say we shouldn't mention that three times. But I almost just feel like that that moment's coming back. And so as a writer, she was like layering it three times to be like, oh, later on, somehow that is going to come back. I don't know. I just had like a lot of confidence in this writer. I can see that. I had a lot of confidence that like they really knew what they were doing. So... I can see that. I can see that. And I love that. There's my I love you when we disagree because <laughs> what's our favorite word in publishing? Subjective. So, yeah. And we get complaints that Carly and Cece agree too much. So there you have it. They don't always agree. Right. So thanks, Carly and Cece, for another awesome Books with Hooks. For those of you who are wanting to submit, you can resubmit work if you submitted it quite a few months ago. If the work has changed or if you have new work, go to the website, theshitaboutwriting.com, and there is a segment there where you can submit your work. Okay, let's go to today's guest. Hi, everyone. It's Cece. Question. What do all great stories have in common? They make us feel, which is why the ability to weave emotion into a story is so important. With that in mind, I'm teaching a class called Writing Emotion, Weaving Emotion into Your Story on June 2nd. Join me to learn about active emotions versus passive emotions when to show and when to tell regarding emotionality, the most common mistakes and challenges in writing emotions, and how to turn them into successes. We'll cover techniques on how to effectively convey emotion in a way that keeps the reader turning the pages of a story with lots of examples from some amazing books. And of course, we'll have time for a Q&A session. Writers of all genres are invited to attend, as knowing how to weave in emotion is a superpower useful for all storytellers. For information on how to register, please head over to my Instagram or Twitter page, click on the link in my bio, and follow the instructions. And don't worry, if you're busy on June 2nd, the class will be recorded, and a recording will be sent to everyone who is registered 24 hours later. I hope to see you there. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the beta reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. 
Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest is the New York Times bestselling author of four novels, All Adults Here, The Vacationers, Modern Lovers, Laura Lamont's Life in Pictures, and the short story collection, Other People We Married. Her books have been published in more than 20 languages and All Adults Here is currently in development as a television series. She and her husband owned Books Are Magic, an independent bookstore in Brooklyn, New York. It's my pleasure to welcome Emma Strobe. Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. This is a huge fangirl moment, and I'm a big fan of yours. And a few years ago, just before the pandemic hit, I got to visit your store, and I found my own book in there, and I got Yay. to sign it, and it found like it felt like a career highlight, which was amazing. Oh, hooray! 
Before we start talking about this time tomorrow, there's something I want to talk about, about how you tour like a boss. I remember, so my first book tour, I had to do a 12 city stop. And for our listeners, you can only take hand luggage because you can't check things in. You're expected to go to all these different events and you've got to have different outfits for these things and it's different shoes and it's a nightmare. And then I saw Emma touring for Modern Lovers and I was like, oh my God, this woman needs to write a manual for the rest of us. Could you tell us what you did in terms of your outfit? Oh, so Modern I will never top that. I will never top it and I'll never be able to do it again either. So what I did for Modern Lovers was the, the, the book jacket was illustrated by this woman named Leah Gorin and I asked her if she would give me permission to use not the whole jacket, but, but just her artwork. And she said, yes. And I went to this website called print all over me, where you can upload any art you want and get it printed on clothing. And so I printed a jumpsuit and I printed, I printed a dress and I printed, I printed t-shirts for my kids. (laughs) And so I just wore those two things at every single book event I did. I alternated or, you know, if it was a warm day, you know, depending on the mood, but it was great. It was great. I really wish I could do that again because I'm about to pack. I leave, I leave on Wednesday morning for 10 days and I don't know what I'm going to (laughs) do. It sounds ridiculous that these are the kinds of things. I mean, we're cerebral people. We're ideas people. And yet we have to worry about how we look at events. And men just show up, probably in the same clothes all the time. But I don't know. Somehow it's hard on women. Yeah. And, and you know, and then it's the outfits and things. Uh, Courtney Mom, whose memoir just came out, Courtney also tours like a boss. I remember touring with Courtney. She had stilettos, like about five pairs of stilettos in her hand luggage along with everything else. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, yeah. So uh, so I took notes of how you did it, Emma. And then of course, post pandemic, the rest of us aren't really touring. So I don't know that I'll ever get to do that, but yeah. Okay, so for our listeners, a bit more about this time tomorrow. So I'm going to read you the flap copy. On the eve of her 40th birthday, Alice's life isn't terrible. She likes her job, even if it isn't exactly the one she expected. She's happy with her apartment, her romantic status, and her independence. And she adores her lifelong best friend. But something is missing. Her father, the single parent who raised her, is ailing and out of reach. How did they get there so fast? Did she take too much for granted along the way? When Alice wakes up the next morning somehow back in 1996, it isn't her 16-year-old body that is the biggest shock or the possibility of romance with her adolescent crush. It's her dad, the vital, charming 49-year-old version of her father with whom she's reunited, now armed with a new perspective on her own life and his. Is there anything that she should do differently this time around? What would she change given the chance? Now, I love chatting with writers about inspiration for novels, but besides that, I want to talk about how some ideas seem to come for authors at the same time. You get a brilliant idea, and the next thing you look, and there's a deal announcement, and someone's coming out with something similar, and you're either like, oh shit, am I going to get to sell this because they've done it, or you're like, okay, it's cool, it's different enough. So, 
I'm not sure if you were writing this when Matt Haig's The Midnight Library came out or if you were already done with that. Was that anything you experienced or did you feel comfortable enough that you turned the trope on its head? Yeah, I mean, I th- the way that I approached it was that I think that time travel, time travel, it, it, it's like the in the water we drink, it's in the air that we breathe. And it's so omnipresent that that I didn't feel like, oh no, somebody else has done this. This is too similar. You know, if anything, like, you know, I have three or four friends who like me are women with small children who are novelists who wrote time travel novels in this, in the last few years. And I mean, to me, it just, it makes the most sense in the world because they were all doing what I was doing for, you know, the first, let's say year of the pandemic, which is not working because they were homeschooling their children and trying to survive. And we all wanted to get the hell out. You know, we wanted to get the hell out of the reality that we were in and the time that we were in. And so where do you turn? Time travel. (laughs) And, you know, like during the pandemic, I feel like that was a time for people to take stock as well. Just a natural kind of pause and going, you know, here I am stuck at home with this person, my husband, who I've always loved very much until he's in my face 24-7. <laughs> Is this where I want to be, etc., etc.? So, So that definitely makes sense to me. But what was your specific inspiration to want to write this particular time travel book? Yeah, so, so my dad, who is, a, who is a writer, Peter Straub, he was in the hospital for several months in 2020. He's okay now. But, you know, I mean, he's he's been in poor health for many, many years. But this was it was acute in a way that it had not been before. And he very, very nearly died. And I mean, he was in the ICU for months. And so I when I was able to be with him there, he, he made a joke. I mean, it was like a joke. Like, what should I write? Oh, you should write about someone visiting her father in the hospital. And I just thought, okay, oh, well, what if I did that? What would that be? And, and that's, where, that's where the book started. Yeah, and it felt very much like a love letter to him, but it also felt like a love letter to New York. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a New York City girl, and, and it's a funny feeling to be – you know, I, I mean, I live in my hometown. I live a few blocks away from my parents. But for certainly 2020, you know, for a long time, I was also isolated and felt like I lived on this little island, this tiny, tiny island that was just my house and, you know, my block, maybe if we went around the block. And I really missed home. I missed New York. I missed my city, even though I'm inside it. And so writing this book was really deeply pleasurable because I got to, I got to take walks, you know, I got to talk to my dad about Jeopardy and nothing. And I got to eat my favorite meals and at restaurants that aren't there anymore. You know, I got to do all of those things by writing this book. 
Yeah, there, there was a nostalgia to it, you know, almost like you were mourning New York while you were living in New York because New York was not the way it was anymore. Yeah. The last time I got that sense was I think Lillian Boxfish takes a walk. And that is a character who's, you know, at the end of her life and walking through New York and remembering all of these things. And that lovely, lovely nostalgia came through. I just want to say how important it is with writing when it comes to plausibility to be planting clues as you're going along so that when the reader gets to a certain point, they're not questioning it and going, mm, would this happen, etc. And you were an absolute pro in it with this <laughs> book so that when we got to page X, we weren't like, would this happen because you've already answered that for us. So for example, there's a moment when Alice goes back to the past and she remembers her best friend's phone number. From the past. Because now remember, yeah. back in the past, she doesn't have a cell phone yeah. and she just picks up the phone and calls her best yeah. friend. You know, which readers might go, oh, would you remember that or whatever? Of course. But, but you dealt with that in the present because there's a moment <laughs> where she goes, I don't even remember this, but I remember Sam's phone number. Yeah. So, so can we talk about that? Did you have to plan that or was it a case of you got to that point and you're like, oh, wait, let me go back and just make sure I work that in? Oh, no, no. It's just, I mean, that's, that's just the way I see the world. I think like I could tell you, you know, the phone number of like, I mean, my best friend from childhood, like, I mean, I will remember her phone number. I mean, you know, I, I'm still friends with her. She has a different phone number. I don't know her phone number now. But I know the phone number of the apartment that she grew up in. You know, I could tell you the phone number of the boy I had the biggest crush on for the longest period of time. Because I called it the most. I mean, I just, you know, why do you remember your birthday? You know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, just... but, and, and I mean, you would know this, but like, we don't know this about you. So what, but what you did was you worked it into the novel so that at no point would we go, how would she remember this? So for example, there's foreshadowing. So when her and her best friend go for her 40th birthday dinner, her best friend gives her this photograph of the night of the 16th birthday. And then that becomes important. So is this that something you do just intuitively as a writer? Are these things you kind of have to map out and plan and say, okay, I have to drop these clues. I, I have to structure um, it this way. I definitely don't map out that kind of stuff. Like, I mean, I, I, I map out sort of very, very big picture, big, big picture stuff. But the little stuff like that, that's the fun of writing. You know, that's the fun of writing is is you sprinkle things and you sprinkle things. And then, and sometimes you do realize like, oh, wait, oh, okay. So that, you know, I mean, you, you, you do have to go back sometimes and, you know, make sure all the, all the lines are pointing in the right direction. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's the joy of it for me is like not, not, and that, and I think that's, that's why it, hopefully it feels organic is because it is organic, you know, it grows out of what the characters are doing and saying. And then, you know, it's your job as the writer to be like, oh, okay. And then to sort of follow it, follow it along and make sure that it works. And sprinkling is the exact right word to use because this is the thing as writers, we can't get heavy handed with that stuff. So we'll go, oh, I forgot to mention this before. And then we'll add 12 paragraphs to <laughs> over explain it. And sometimes all it needs is a line. It's just a line. And we trust the readers that they will pick up on that. So it's these little sprinklings throughout that make it feel so organic and so authentic. So another thing is, let's talk about playing around with structure. So you have written the story, you know, the structure's really sound in terms of we begin at this point, 
We go up until the point when she wakes up and then it's the 16th birthday and then we're back in the past. The chapters are very traditionally structured, but then you have a point when she starts really going backwards and forwards quite a bit. And you obviously didn't want to have repetition. So then you have these tiny little vignettes that just point out the differences. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, because I I mean, it's, you know, I, I was thinking... I don't know, it's sort of cinematically, I guess, at that point that like, you know, you've seen it, you've seen it so many times. I know the reader, I don't have to tell the reader that first part, I can just jump right to it and they'll and they'll be with me, you know, so it becomes almost like a montage of, of scenes. And that was, I mean, you know, that writing those sections were so fun. <laughs> I mean, and I like, I could have done it forever. But you know, at that at that point, I, I knew I, I had to sort of reel Alice back in, in order for the book to do what it had to do. But yeah, oh, it was great fun writing those sections. And in those sections, you just point out what's different. Because like you say, the reader knows what's the same. And it's just kind of these snapshots, you know, and it becomes a shorthand. It's just, mm -hmm. it's almost like giving someone directions and just going, green tree, red house, yeah, stop yeah. sign, you know, yeah. and, and we're already orientated very, very yeah. quickly. So can you talk about when, I feel like you chose your tense very, very deliberately, because I think it would have been quite easy to say, okay, the modern day story is in the present tense, the past is in the past tense, but you made it all in the past tense. And I'm always saying to my creative writing students, when it comes to point of view, when it comes to tense, play around with it, circle the building, find your way in, but mm -hmm. choose something very deliberately. So, so what was your thinking there? Well, I guess, I mean, it's, I think it, it, it had to be the same. Like, I, I, I didn't want her to experience, like, I, it couldn't have been, you know, the present day was in the present tense and the, and the 16, you know, the 1996 was in the past tense, because Alice isn't experiencing it in the past tense. She's ex experiencing it in the present tense. I, don't, I mean, I, I just, I like, I like the past tense because I think it allows for more reflection and more, more space and more time, which is what the book is all about. You know, I think I, it would have, you know, there's a lot of processing that is happening for Alice and has happened for Alice. And I think that she, yeah, I don't think I would have been able to tell the story in, in the present tense. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, I think a lot of less experienced writers would have gone for the present tense because of the immediacy mm -hmm. to show it, it all feels immediate to her. But like you say, it's a taking stock, it's processing everything, which just naturally lends itself so perfectly in this instance for all of it to be mm -hmm. in the past tense. I mm -hmm. want to talk about the phenomenal writing at a line level, Emma, because this is something you just make it look so flawless. It's just... And, and, I, and I'm going to read just one paragraph for our listeners, and then I want to go through that, that process with you. When someone asked how her father was doing, oh, and let me just say that this is like page four. It's, no, it's actually page two, right? So this is to give you an idea. When mm. someone asked how her father was doing, Emily, who she shared a desk with in the admissions office, or Sam, her best friend from high school, who had three children, a husband, a house in Montclair, 
and a closet full of high heels to wear to her job at a terrifying law firm or her boyfriend, Matt, Alice wished for an easy answer. The longer it went on, the more the question turned into an empty phrase. The way one might say, how are you, to an acquaintance passing on the sidewalk and keep walking. There were no tumors to excise, no germs to fight. It was just that many neighborhoods of Leonard's body were falling apart in a great unified chorus. His heart, his kidneys, his liver. Now, despite the poetry, you know, there's so much poetry to that. But besides that, you convey a lot of information in just a few lines because you immediately orientate us as readers without... You know, going into too much exposition, this happened, he's been in the hospital for this long, these are her best friends, this is her boyfriend, boom, we get that in a paragraph. Is that something you've had to work on as a writer? Is it something you polish as you're drafting? Can you take us through that? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's it's about polishing and sort of trimming as I go. You know, I think that, especially with this book, I wanted to, I knew I had to explain like what was happening to Leonard in the hospital, like why he was in the hospital. And there's no later in the book, there is, but, but earlier in the book, there's, you know, there's no diagnosis, you know, it's not like he has cancer. That's what's going on here. And so I needed a way, I needed a way to, to sort of say that quickly, but yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I like, it's funny. I haven't thought about it this way, but I, I, I do like to do two things at once. And I, I guess I, it, feels efficient to me and efficient and satisfying to bring in, you know, sort of information that needs to be conveyed, but to have it have a little more pizzazz to have it <laughs> do something else, because God knows that's just deadly boring to say. Is that how you, is that how you think in that kind of efficient way? Or does it translate differently when you're writing, you aim for that kind of poetic efficiency? Gosh, I know. I think from now on, I'm going to just think about it just like that. I'm just going to say I'm aiming for poetic efficiency. I think that's a perfect way to describe it. I mean, for my goal in life, poetic efficiency. I'm going to trademark that. I will I will give you 50% of the proceeds whenever anyone says that in the future. I, yeah, I mean, I, you know what, I think on a line, on a line level, that's just the pleasure of writing. You know, that's just me having fun and exploring and, and seeing what's there. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually always surprised, like when I go back for, you know, cause obviously there are always subsequent drafts. I'm always surprised as to like how much of that kind of stuff is there in the beginning. And that it's not, it's not me like going back and being like, Oh, I have, I mean, sometimes I, like, Oh, I have to make this, sound better or whatever. But, but often I will go back and I'll be like, Oh, I didn't, I don't remember. I don't remember writing that, you know, and it's just, it's just a part of it from the beginning, which is, which is nice. Poetic efficiency. That's what it is. It's poetic. efficiency, And it is magical when that happens. Cause I think so much of being a writer has been critical of our own work and going, this is crap. This is terrible. That when we are able to go back and we go, well, this was not a shitty first draft. It was a first draft. Yeah. And actually I nailed it pretty well there. Yeah. yeah. That that's like a gift that your past self is giving to your present self when, when you're editing. 
And, you know, for our listeners, so we have two agents who are co-hosts on the podcast and we read query letters and opening pages to give people advice so that they can land their dream agent. And when we say the writing just isn't there yet at a line level, you know, this is the kind of thing we're talking about. You can't just edit your novel based on plot and based on chapters or on pages. You know, the sentence is the building block of the paragraph, which is the building block of the page, which is the building block of the chapter and of the entire novel and these are things that you know we belabor it and we like look at the writing on a line level because when you read something like what Emma's written she makes it look so gloriously elegant and just you know effortless but again this is Emma's what fifth or sixth book so this is you know something that comes with time and practice Yes, my first books were terrible. I mean, the first books I ever wrote, like not, I don't mean the first books that got published. I mean, the first books I wrote, good Lord, they were awful. Yeah, and, and that's a thing that, you know, aspiring writers don't see. They see the finished product and they see the huge success Emma's had and they don't go, oh, well, okay. So, so how many books did you write before you got your first one published? Four. I mean, I wrote, th I wrote four books that, didn't you know not a not a word of them has been published but the fourth book which I worked on for years and years and years and the agent I had broke up with me because she was tired of working on it looking at it what I decided was that I needed to take my characters and the the basic premise and take them out of the novel I'd written and send them on vacation. And then it became The Vacationers, which was my second novel and was my, you know, my biggest success, like at that point. So, so you never know, you never know, you know, I, I didn't like, I, I mean, I had to throw out the whole thing. Like I didn't, there's not a word of, of my first, the first version of it in the book, but what it meant was that when I was writing The Vacationers, I already knew everything. You know, I knew every inch of these characters. I knew their backstories. I knew them backwards and forwards. And so I wrote that book like a, like a knife through hot butter. You know, it was just, it was, it was so easy to write that book because I had done years of work preparing for it. Yeah. Sometimes we have to kill a book so that its ghost can come back, you know, and, and haunt a new book, which, yeah. so not everything ends up in the, in the drawer or in the bin. And, you know, if this has been the process for Emma, then I hope the rest of you are feeling very heartened by that. So for our listeners, get this time tomorrow. We're putting it on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Remember, support authors through bookshop.org because it means that an independent bookstore is benefiting from that and the author is benefiting from that. Emma, thanks so much for joining us. It's been such a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Rachel Kranz. I don't know about you, but I love the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast. I love it not just because it's practical and gives me real tips that I can use in my writing practice, but I also love it for the sense of community it's provided me, even if remotely, as I listen to it. So much so that after my book Open came out, I decided I wanted to pay that idea of building community via podcast and being of service to other writers and human beings in general forward. 
So I've started a new show I want to tell you about called Help Existing. Now, each week, I'll be talking with a different guest about getting practical help on a specific aspect of existence. So this is going to be a show where we address all sorts of topics. There might be one week where we talk about how to address our fear of death, whereas the next week will be about how to figure out whether or not you want to have kids. There'll be lots of mindfulness. There'll be lots of authors joining us. And I think it'll be very useful to fans of this podcast because as writers, so much of what we need to learn to do is simply to be able to exist and observe and be in the moment with our own thoughts and with reality as it's unfolding around us. But sometimes that can be quite overwhelming. So I'm hoping this podcast will give you practical tools that will feed the quality of your life as well as your writing practice. Thanks so much, and I hope you'll subscribe to Help Existing. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th 
also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.